0: Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rule-based investing, and of course, uh, where we also take some of your questions, but today we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely the one and only Jesse Felder, whom... I'm sure many of you already know from his excellent podcast and blog. So let me start by saying welcome to the show, Jesse. Great to have you. And as usual, great to uh, have you Jerry in the morning and uh, Moritz in the afternoon. Good morning, good afternoon. Now, um I think it's fair to uh, to say that this week was focused on on Brexit and the many votes that took place in the UK Parliament. And um, as we know today, uh, the many times they managed to say no. But of course, this week was also the last week of March and therefore end of Q1. So a good time to take stock uh, of how trend-based strategies did in a quarter where U.S. stock sold 13% and uh, also where bonds did really well. So for a strategy that is often referred to as crisis, a crisis alpha strategy, Um, You know, it'll be interesting to see how we code with a quarter that, um, you know, didn't really possess any crisis. So with that in mind, Moritz, should we do the usual, get to you first and uh, see how it all panned out? Sure. Let's do the usual. Um, So year to date, because it's the
1: end of the quarter, year to date and therefore quarter to date is minus 5%. But I had a very good month, 10% up and a very good past week, 5% up. And, you know, I can really keep that very short. It's been long the dollar, long the bonds. That's been the thing. And that's been making the money. All the other instruments in the portfolio, the equities, the energies, you know, bit up and down, but no meaningful gains or losses. So the dollar and the bonds.
0: Sure. Well, on our side, I would say uh, certainly some of the same uh, things. Uh, interestingly enough, I mean, the bonds did very well for us this week, Um but the the big winner for the week was was corn um nice to see some of the commodities uh, doing well um i mean the month as well very strong for us double digit so uh, and the year looking pretty pretty or the, the quarter looking pretty strong as well um, but, of course, it was also a month, I would say, with, with some challenges, right? I mean, we let's not forget lean hogs up uh, more than 50% in a month where I think most trend followers were caught uh, wrong-footed, uh, being short from the sort of the prevailing trend going into to, uh, to March. Um, so, I think a good lesson for uh, many investors about uh, diversification, uh, about risk management, about not trading too large in any one uh, opportunity, uh but like you Moritz uh you know clearly a, a month that was helped by um uh fixed income in, in particular really strong there but uh, yeah nice to uh, be able to uh, talk positively about performance uh for a change um what about you Jerry single stocks uh, did they have a big impact on your side uh, which is of course different to to what we do
2: definitely a good uh good period for <clears throat> being uh mostly long single stocks and just a few shorts uh i don't uh, participate in the interest rates to the extent that you guys do uh i have this phobia about uh, getting long something that's close to negative or zero so that looks like a mistake but um, there's a lot of good things going on in the grains as you said weakness there and uh uh once i got long the hogs they kind of reversed and uh got run out of a little bit of my palladium this week sort of a thin market that um, is subject to, unfortunately, some major givebacks. But uh, overall, a great, a good month, and um, it is uh, feeling a little bit better about the trend following these days.
0: Absolutely. But of course, it's not only trend following we're going to talk about today, because now we want to turn our attention to you, Jesse. Uh, I think actually I skipped over a little bit in my introduction, but it is really great to... Uh, have you on the show today and we very much look forward to diving into kind of your world and and how you approach the the current uh, environment and also how you look at um you know the rules based investing and and so on and so forth but i think before maybe jesse before we dive into all of those details maybe just to frame our conversation today it 's always good to kind of understand a bit about your background, how you got to where you are today, and perhaps also what influenced you um, along the way so if you don 't mind taking us taking us back in time to to start out with
3: yeah sure and no, i 'd be happy to um, i started uh, i 've been interested in finance and investing for a long time uh, when i when I was a kid I actually um, my dad got an Apple IIe computer, one of the first home computers you could get and he got me this game called Millionaire, which was basically a stock market simulator and uh, You can look it up on youtube it 's a horribly boring game it 's actually incredible how horrible this game is if you try and play play it today but uh you know you 'd pick a couple stocks and then it would like crunch numbers for you know twenty minutes or something and then spit out uh you know your your hypothetical returns and and so you know, I kind of got bored with that after time and I started kind of paper trading. This was when I was maybe like 10 years old or something. And I, I would essentially pick stocks and look up the prices in Barron's on the weekend. And, and uh, so I was interested in it from a young age. Um, and when I graduated college, I went to work uh, for Bear Stearns in Los Angeles and uh, ended up working for a guy there who was essentially running a hedge fund inside Bear. Um Later on, we ended up forming our own hedge fund um, in LA and uh, did that for a number of years. And I literally quit that at the peak of the dot-com mania and moved up here to Bend, Oregon, where I live now. And I've been essentially just managing my own money and writing about the markets um, since then. So um, I really kind of grounded in a fund- fundamental kind of value investing approach. But, um, you know, I've, I've recently, over the years, kind of... I've uh, tried to add other methodologies and things to help improve my timing. You know, obviously fundamentals are not a very good timing um, utility, and so I've added you know some technical, some some trend following, really kind of a, mo- a momentum based uh, analysis um to my to my process uh in recent years that i think has has helped me avoid value traps and these kinds of things but uh yeah i i thanks for having me on the show I'm, I'm excited to talk with you guys trend following is something that i was introduced to a number of years ago that's why i had jerry on my podcast was really kind of understand his process and so yeah I, i'm excited to to do this
0: absolutely it'll be fun uh Marge, do you want to kick off or or how do you want to um to do this Yeah, well, we can do it uh,
1: anyway. I think we're pretty flexible on that. As you say, it's it's raw. But um, so, you know, Jesse, we're all uh, trend following traders. um, And and so you've just mentioned it. So so how do you how do you trade it? Do you apply it to the futures markets or cash equities Do you use ETFs? Is it is it systematic? Maybe maybe it would be great if you could give us some more background on, on, on how you integrate that into your investment process.
3: Yeah, sure. It's it's definitely not systematic. In fact, I I okay. am kind of um, not a huge fan of systematic value investing. Um, I just think there's so many companies that uh, you know appear good values, um, but for some reason or another, they're they they do not really um, you know work out well. Um, so it's 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 much more of kind of a, a Warren Buffett type of approach to individual equities. I want to find things that are cheap and undeservedly so. And you, the thing that I was introduced to um, early on in my career that I think um, is really the fun, one of the fundamental things, uh, in addition to kind of the margin of safety concept, buy something below its intrinsic value and you reduce your risk and enhance your returns. But in addition to that, I, 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 this the, when I first was at Bear Stearns and 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 the kind of and at the hedge fund. Um, My mentor there really introduced me to studying um, insider trading and and looking at Uh, you know, trying to find predictive insiders. And so guys who have a track record at buying their own stock or selling their own stock at the right time, um, because nobody knows more about what's going on at the companies than the top executives. And so for me, I want to find a situation with a stock that I think is really cheap. And then it's that idea or that thesis is being validated by significant insider buying. So you have the CEO, CFO, what have you. Um, and kind of the way I define significant is these guys are spending, you know, hopefully multiples of their annual salary in buying up their own shares. And so um, I remember reading reminiscences of a stock operator and Jesse Livermore in that says, you know, whenever a stock is truly cheap, the top, top executives will never fail to try and take advantage of that by buying. And so to me, the, you know, following insider activity has been something that I've, I've been doing for 20 plus years. And, and I think it makes it a real big difference to the value approach
1: interesting very interesting so you're keeping you're keeping track on on how effective that is uh as opposed to uh say buying based on rules and just momentum so you're you, you're getting track on the extra kicker that you get by that you know from that insider buying
3: absolutely so i mean just for example one of the most successful insiders i've ever seen his name is bill Steeritz. He's a billionaire. He was um, in a book called Outliers, which profiled, um, you know, successful CEOs that kind of went against the grain. Uh, And so I think they highlighted his tenure at Ralston Purina, um, where, you know, he was basically generated 20 plus percent average annual returns for shareholders during that time frame. But in I really noticed him in um, late 90s, early 2000 when he took over Ball Corp, which was a company that makes glass jars, aluminum cans. Um, you couldn't probably find a more you know anti dot com mania <laughs> stock. Nobody wanted to own a glass jar maker during the dot com mania, but certainly not. <laughs> yeah, he, he came in and bought about forty or fifty million dollars worth of his uh, you know worth of stock with his own money, and brought, put in his own, whole management team a lot of the people from Rouse and Purina, and they all bought tons of stock with their own money. And, you know, Ball Corp since then, it's from 2000 to, you know, 2019 is up 40 fold. Um, and so, you know, he's a guy that I pay close attention to. He's now the executive chairman of Post and, um, you know, has been buying some Post stock over the past few years. And that's another one that's quadrupled in the last three, four years. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, these are the types of things that I look for, you know, that, that you have a, a, a an executive with an amazing track record. Um, and you know, not just in running the company, but in you know buying stock. And so right. to me, that, that really helps raise the batting average.
1: And where are you getting that information from? Is it uh, internet, you're looking, you have special sources, or is there like a central kind of like platform where you find that that info?
3: Yeah, there's actually a couple different websites I use. The first one, my friend Asaf Surya, he's a guy from over in um, Eugene here in Oregon, who built a site called Insight Arbitrage, um, and his site's excellent. Another one that I've been using a lot lately is called Open Insider. Um, you know, because every time an insider trades, they have to dis- disclose it within, right. you know, forty eight hours or something. So it is also, you know, on the SEC website um, there, but but these other websites kind of. Um, you know, consolidate the, the information aggregated, so it's a lot easier to digest than trying to filter through the SEC filings themselves.
0: Sure, Jesse, uh, maybe before Jerry, you jump in, uh, I, I, we got a question from one of our listeners, a guy called Francois, who um, who wrote in and said that um, not long ago, and, and I'm not entirely sure exactly what the timing is here, um, that you had kind of gone on record saying you you, know, you think we're in the beginning of a bear market or we are in in a bear market. And he would love to hear sort of a little bit if you could talk about kind of your, your current uh, thinking positioning uh, or approach um to to the markets right now maybe that's a good question to get in early so that we kind of frame uh, uh you know the conversation a bit before uh, Jerry comes on with some of his thoughts
3: yeah you no, i i'm i I do think we're in a topping a major topping process there there are so and my positioning in regards to that is is so I have these value ideas that i'm that i I'm really bullish on, and I own them and i and i don't allow my macro kind of um concerns to get in the way of taking advantage of micro opportunities i think that's that's a mistake that i've i've made in the past and and You know, every time I find a good micro opportunity, you know, it looks something along the lines of a ball corp, I'm not going to fail to try and take advantage of that. But the way I, you know, hedge against general, you know, market risk, um, which I'm I'm worried about now is, is I'll either I'll have some individual shorts or I'll use, you know, kind of a, a, a tail hedging strategy with put options. Um, or a variety of uh, combination of the two. Uh, if I do short individual stocks, it's in very small size. I, I do have some individual stock shorts, um, but mainly my concerns, you know, about the broader market are, you know, it starts with fundamentals. Um, when you look at uh, the Buffett yardstick, which is essentially the value of the stock market relative to the size of the economy we're at levels that have only been seen in you know, 2000 and in 1929. And so, um, you know, value, from a valuation standpoint, you know, 99% of the time stocks are cheaper than they are today. Uh, and you know, that would suggest that a reversion in valuations could be you know, pretty painful, like, kind of like the, the, the bear markets we've seen uh, over the past 20 years. Um, but I, but I, I, don't like. I said I don't like valuation as a timing tool. Right. Uh, and so when you look at the um, the things that are you know kind of uh, are important, um, uh, I guess uh, omens of, a, of an oncoming bear market. The two things that I would point to are you know breadth, stock market breadth uh, overall, and then also risk appetites. Um, and so you know breadth uh, in terms of breadth. One of the things I use is I look at the number of uh, Hindenburg omens, and I've written about this on the blog over the past year, um, a Hindenburg omen is essentially a, a marker of increasing um, divergence or disparity in the underlying stocks in the market. So you have a strong market, all stocks should be powering the market higher or the majority of stocks. For a Hindenburg omen to be triggered, you need to have a lot of stocks making new lows. In fact, it has to be you know, just about as many stocks making new lows as making new highs. And so that would not be a sign of a healthy market, and I don't use it as a crash indicator, as some do. To me, I want to see what, what when you see a, a large number of these omens triggered, that's a sign that the, the breadth in the market is, is significantly weakening. And that was, you know, back last fall, before we had the fourth quarter sell-off, we had the, the greatest number of Hindenburg omens triggered on the NYC and the NASDAQ over a 10-day period, over a 20-day period, I mean, in history, or at least in the last 50 years, um, the data that I was looking at. And so that was a huge sign to me that, uh, and the only other times we've seen breath warnings that significant are before, you know, in 2007 and in, in uh, uh, early 2000, late 99. Um, and so to me, that's that's a clear sign that breath is really struggling, the market is really struggling to, to maintain its upward momentum. And then when you watch risk appetites shift, And I'm talking about, you know, investor preferences for different sectors and those kinds of things, you know, a healthy market, you should see, you know, investor preference towards cyclicals, consumer discretionary, these types of things towards junk bonds rather than Um, Treasuries, And so when you see risk appetites shift towards treasuries away from corporate debt, you see towards staples and utilities away from discretionary and these types of things and cyclicals, to me, that's a sign that uh, investors are starting to shun risk. And so when you see a very expensive uh, stock market with, you know, significant signs of of dispersion or or waning breadth, and then shifting risk appetites, to me, those things all point towards bear market. And, and so those are things that I've been paying attention to. And that's really the, my main reasoning for saying, I I believe we're in the midst of a topping process for the broad stock market right now.
2: Jerry. Yeah. So many good things to talk about. Uh, I would just uh, say that um, I've seen it. uh, I don't, I think it could get worse as far as I could get further along. I'm not long that many stocks. I have a really diverse portfolio that doesn't really change a great deal. And, uh, I maybe two or three from each of the major S&P sectors and so in 2013 um, I was long 90 some percent you know so the 2014 was very ugly and uh, but now I think it could get worse and I think that's one of the problems with uh, trying to figure out where the top is is that um, we underestimate it when it's uh, good or bad for us um, so I think that uh, I'm not fully long yet if that means anything to you so um uh, When I first started trading and getting involved with the markets, I read books and was very interested in Marty Zweig, who's sort of similar to what you were saying earlier, Jesse, which is uh, looking at sentiment, looking at insiders, trying to combine that with trend and money management. Uh, And even with Richard Dennis, uh, part of the whole turtle story that gets lost is all the stuff that we were taught to look at uh, besides trend, uh, which was things like uh, sentiment and uh, too many people being on one side of the trade and sort of adding some sort of discretion in, which was sort of uh, not frowned upon at all but now we've all sort of turned into these systematic robotic type traders and not utilizing all these uh, other good ideas as much anymore and uh, every now and then i read articles um, about the next phase trend following alone is not good enough now what else is going to be added to the trend following and a lot of it does remind me of sort of the sentiment and uh, looking at big data and trying to come up with uh, other ideas to uh, add to the trend following. I don't know if you want to comment on that, but my real question is is um, more around passive and your thoughts on passive uh, indexing and is do you, do you see passive uh, as, as sort of um, as a systematic approach that might get overcrowded just like maybe trend following is overcrowded. No,
3: absolutely, I I think for me, the, what was really appealing about trend following is one of the biggest mistakes I have made in my you know career is selling stocks way too soon, <laughs> and so you know leaving a ton of gains on the table. And it's always like, hey, if the trend if the trend is working, you know why not hold on to this thing even if it even if it doesn't look cheap anymore, even if it's fully valued. And so for me, that's one of the things that has been valuable about that for me is is you know hang on to a position that's working. Um, Uh, and don't just sell it because it's fully valued. But in terms of passive, I do think there's a couple, um, you know, interesting points to be made about passive. You know, one of the things I think people are, most people are unaware of, and and I I think, you know, I I should qualify this by saying, I I really do think the the push for investors moving towards kind of a low cost approach and diversifying against, you know, it helps them rectify a lot of the mistakes that they make in terms of, you know, uh, you know, Buying high, selling low, and and uh, uh, you know paying overpaying, you know for 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 products that are are not always in their best interest. But um, one of the big problems I see with passive is uh, and, and and I'll, I'll, I'll offer a, a better systematic approach to traditional indexes um, is that I think a lot of people don't understand that in two thousand five they changed the index methodology from just being cap weighted to being float adjusted cap weighted. And so what does this do? This basically says to, you know, it, it basically systematically does the opposite of what I'm trying to do as an investor. <clears throat> I have found that some of the most successful companies in the market are these owner operated companies. So um, I always use Intel as the best example. You look at Intel under Andy Grove's leadership, and you made 30% a year or something like that for 20 years. Then Andy Grove retires in 2000 and sells all his stock and Intel has gone nowhere for the last 20 years. You've literally made no money. You've actually still lost a little bit of money in Intel. Um, And the way the index works is when Andy Grove owned a third of the shares, you know, during that wonderful performance period, they would have to systematically underweight it because the float was too, too, too small. The float-adjusted market cap was much smaller than the actual market cap, and so the index would systematically underweight it. As soon as Andy Grove sells all of his stock, raises the float, now, the pa- now passive owners are going to say, great, now we can buy a ton of Intel, right when in- Andy Grove is getting out. And to me, that, that's a really big problem with passive in that we're going to systematically underweight these owner-operated companies, which are some of the best companies you know, uh, in, at least the ownership is aligned with you. They're not just getting stock options that they want to try and cash out at some point. They're typically long-term owners and, and aligned with other shareholders when you're, when you're an owner operator. Um, and so to me, that's one problem that I think, you know, passive and, and what it's remarkable to me. And, uh, Steve Bregman really kind of drew my attention to this when I had him on my podcast is that, Even though passive has changed their methodology, they still use the passive track record of a a non-float-adjusted weighting going back in time, and and no other money manager is allowed to do this. Right? You change your methodology, you have to demonstrate what that methodology did back in the past. Passive is not doing this. They're showing this is what the S&P 500 did up to 2005 as a pure market cap. But today, it's not. They're not using that methodology. So um, it's almost kind of. I'm, I've, I've written it's. It's almost kind of a bait and switch where this track record is not representative of the way they're managing money today in the indexes. Um, but then there's also this issue of crowding too. And Charlie Munger had something interesting to, to say about this a couple of times. Warren Buffett's partner, where that if you take passive to the nth degree, where, where passive starts becoming bigger than active in the markets. Well, it actually undermines its most basic assumption. So, uh, you know, passive is essentially relying on the fact that the markets to a certain extent are, uh, that are efficient. And they only get efficient because active investors are analyzing values and making per- buy and sell decisions based on their research. So to the extent that active is, is, is marginalized passive investing is now driving you know, prices in the markets. And so, their basic assumption that the markets are efficient, the greater passive investing becomes more popular, the less that uh, that underlying um, thesis of passive is actually valid. And so, those are important things I think you know, passive investors need to think about. There is, a, there is a different way that Rob Arnett has come up with called uh, it's, it's fundamental indexes. And I, I really like these and I, I've written about them um, you know, for, for my newsletter um, customers for, for a while because they basically just create indexes using a different methodology. Instead of weighting on market cap or float adjusted market cap, they weight company by, uh, by their sales um, and by their net asset value and basically fundamental characteristics. So rather than having the most popular stock in the market by market cap, uh, be, be the largest weighting, the company that has the greatest amount of sales and the greatest amount of fundamental assets and those types of things becomes the largest weighting. And so the, where this becomes valuable is uh, you avoid the most overvalued, owning too much of the most overvalued stocks at the peak of the market, which I think is, which, uh, you know, is one of the, the true, I think, uh, Important factors in value investing is that it, it it prevents you from taking those big losses in a down cycle. Uh, or at least, usually, kind of outperforming the down cycle by owning value. And so by using a fundamental index, I think it's just a a, a, a better approach.
0: You mentioned, you mentioned float and, and, and certainly as a, as a trend follower, I'm not an expert by any means of, of the imagination, but but uh, it couldn't escape my own attention that, of course, with all these share buybacks in the last few years, the float seems to be getting smaller and smaller as well. How does that impact uh, on this uh, situation as well.
3: No, that, that's absolutely true. I mean, so it's interesting to me to hear some of the rationale, um, you know, for passive investing is that, yeah, the, the stock market is shrinking. The number of public companies out there is has been shrinking. And that was actually one of the fundamental, um, uh, I guess, uh, arguments for owning stocks leading up to the 1929 crash was <laughs> that there's a limited supply of equity. So you have to take advantage of of, uh, you know, getting in on it now because it's only going to keep dwindling. Yeah. Well, I mean, so absolutely buybacks are doing that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, Charlie Munger, I, you know, I mentioned him uh, a minute ago. He talked about this this almost very similar dynamic during the, um, you know, nifty 50 uh, stock craze in, in the 1960s where I think it was one of the big Wall Street firms essentially created a fund to just buy those 50 stocks. And they only charged 25 basis points. It was essentially an index fund in the nifty 50 stocks, uh, the most popular 50 stocks in the market. And, you know, he said, because so much money flowed into this, this one um, strategy, this nifty 50 strategy, the record kind of created itself for a time. It was kind of a self-fulfilling um, you know virtuous cycle of money flowing in, pushing the prices higher. Um, and I think that's also what's going on in passive is that money's just the you know flowing in and, and literally the market is now just moving on flows. And so um, you know, money flows into passive, market rises, uh, money starts flowing out, uh, and and but you know buybacks are also obviously a a big part of that. The the problem with buybacks is they are so cyclical. I mean, companies buy the most amount of stock at the peak of the market right. and then at the bottom of the market, there's no buyback activity to be because of financial stress and, you know, all these other things. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a cyclical factor too that, that compounds or exacerbates the cycle.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that the almost unprecedented interest rate uh, situation we have complicates some of the valuation historical accuracy of some of the valuation calculations these days.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's been, um, you know, debunked so many times this idea of the Fed model, which, you know, is uh, you should essentially, um, you know, you could pay higher valuations for stocks when interest rates are low. That explains investor behavior. They certainly do that. Um, you know, there's certain, certainly a reach for yield when when interest rates go low. You know, people move to dividend stocks. And, and to me, it's amazing to see the valuations of some of these things. You know, McDonald's is, is one, for example, that trades. It's twice as expensive as it's ever been in, in company history, more than twice as expensive. And there's just Boeing is another one, you know, that are they're they're so uh, kind of insanely expensive. And it's all, you know, due to this this reach for yield. But, you know, there's um, Cliff Asnes wrote probably the original kind of critique of this thesis of, uh, you know, low interest rates allow me to pay more for for equities um, in a paper called Fight the Fed Model. Um, And basically, he showed that, you know, when interest rates are low, earnings growth is also low. And so it doesn't justify paying a higher higher price. Essentially, if you think of a a discounted cash flow model, you can lower your discount rate. But what investors are doing, there's lowering the discount rate, but they're not also lowering the earnings growth rate. Uh, and in the discounted cash flow model, if you lower both of those things together it the valuation of the company doesn't change at all and so you should actually what investors are technically doing is they're lowering the discount rate, but they're keeping their earnings growth rate high um, which is which is a you know just a classic fallacy that you're absolutely right low interest rates create that distortion um, and uh, you know I do think we're kind of Seeing a shift right now from this long-term disinflationary environment to a longer-term inflationary environment, Um, but that—that's you know another topic we can get into if you like.
0: No, actually, I would love to stay on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, more—it's just me jumping in because you mentioned that, and I think that's something that um, you know is one of your big um, sort of uh, themes at the moment, uh, Jesse. And I would love to know from your point of view. I mean. I'm sure many investors probably can't remember the last time we had you know real inflation, so to speak and uh, and I wonder whether you have some suggestions as to how this transition may affect um you know strategies, including momentum trend following i mean um and and I guess also when you see big transitions, I imagine that asset allocation uh, becomes really important. So, you know, how 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 do you think investors should be um thinking about this um you know should 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 what you're seeing uh, turn out to be true.
3: Yeah, and, and and these are these are very long-term dynamics to just be clear. This is not something that's, you know, inflation's not going to I mean, we're we're late in the cycle too, so we could start seeing wage inflation pressures. But uh, you know, I'm talking about you know over the next probably 10, 20, 20, years. I think we've seen this disinflationary environment that's been a product of of you know really two factors. Um, one is the baby boomers coming into the workforce was a huge influx of labor supply. Um, we've seen, you know, the the downfall of unions and all these kinds of things, and and the labor share of corporate profits, all go way down because labor supply has gone up, uh, and you know. Uh, uh, at the same time, we saw this big push towards globalization, right? Where the offshoring of labor became very popular among corporate America to help them really boost the bottom line and save a ton of money on, on labor costs. So with the combination of this huge demographic, um, you know, uh, force of labor supply plus the offshoring of labor, you had a huge influx of labor supply that was very, very beneficial to um, keeping those labor costs low. Uh, and and uh, you know now we're seeing the, the baby boomers retire, and um, the generations following are not nearly you know big enough to 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 pick up the slack there. So, labor supply is potentially you know becoming constrained there. And then we're now seeing you know a lot of political you know things going on that are shifting this idea from of globalization to more of a deglobalization framework. We're talking we're seeing a lot of this idea of, you know, offshoring rather than paying, you know, and the political spectrum, we're seeing a lot of people talk about minimum wage and all these kinds of things, and you need to really focus back on employees. Um, you know, that's going raise, to uh, raise, raise costs um, and, and potentially create a new inflationary um, dynamic. I think the, the way that investors need to think about this is what's done really well during disinflation it's been financial assets, right? Stocks and bonds. So, bond interest rates have gone down. We've had this incredible bond bull market for 30 plus years. We've seen uh, that benefit the stock market, right? Like I just said, following discount rates boosts, you know, it's kind of a, even though it shouldn't boost um, stock prices, it does because of the the reach for yield. Um, in an inflationary environment, financial assets don't, financial assets typically, typically struggle, um, and it's real assets that do really well, and if you look at the great asset allocators, you know whether it's David Swenson and the Yale Endowment or um, you know anybody else, uh, they all have a significant allocation to real assets at all times. So I am talking about you know commodities and tips and gold and you know these types of things, um, real estate. Uh, so. I think that's important for investors to understand that, you know, a lot of people just have this 60-40 portfolio, or maybe it's 70-30-80-20 these days, where it's just stocks and bonds. Well, If you own only financial assets and we do go in an inflationary environment, that's going to be very painful. Um, so having an allocation to real assets to some, some degree uh, is, is important normally, but I, you know, just as a diversification tool, but I think it'll be especially important if we do see a return to kind of an inflationary dynamic.
1: I agree. That sounds great. And you're know, talking about that, you can do that by being long gold, being long real estate. But we spoke about value at the beginning. Um, there's also a point to be made about value in commodities or value in credit or value in, in the fixed income market. Is that something that you're looking at? Are you looking at value place also in other asset classes or is the value view constrained to the to the equity markets?
3: Oh no i i yeah I absolutely apply it to to commodities and and gold and these things and and uh you know i i there's a chart that's gone around and you look at the the ratio of uh you know real assets to financial assets and real assets have almost never been cheaper in history than they are to financial assets today um and specifically you know i I'm actually been bullish on gold for the past couple of years. Um, it's kind of, I mean, it's up 20% since 2015, but it still kind of seems like it's, it's struggled. It's surprising to me that, you know, gold and stocks have done almost, you know, equally well over the past few years and people don't realize that. People are still very bearish on gold and, and bullish on stocks. Um, but to me, I, I look at, you know, uh, gold as the inverse of the dollar. And when you look at what drives the dollar um, over longer periods of time, is essentially the federal deficit. Uh, You know, when the deficit's narrowing, gold does poorly, or, you know, the dollar does well and gold does poorly. When the deficit is widening, um, the dollar does poorly and gold does well. Um, and, And that's, you know, a pretty strong relationship over time. And so right now is one of the only times in history we've seen the federal deficit widening dramatically during an economic expansion. And so this tells me that if we do go into recession, the deficits, you know, already over a trillion dollars on an annualized rate, we're going to see a two trillion dollar deficit plus, um, that's going to be very bearish for the dollar and, and very good for gold. Um, and so for me, it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, gold still hasn't broken out, still a lot of negative sentiment towards it, even though the deficit is widening. Um, and that's potentially very bearish for the dollar.
1: Right. So that's the the inflation and the inflation hedging. There's also when we speak about the tail say, right? And I think um, some of that was maybe uh, in the area of the passive discussions that that you guys had just a few minutes ago with, you know, passive to me is not only just the, the passive, you know, ETF trackers, there's also the closet indexers, there's, you know, the systematic guys, all of that creates flow driven investments, you know, to the one side and then also you know, if if there's a change in trend, then substantially to the other side, maybe creating volatilities that, you know, we haven't seen in many, many years. So looking at that, there's, you know, people, here's people speaking about, we need to have a tail hedge for that, for that type of environment. And so my question here is, you know, are you looking at the VIX index uh, in any shape or form? Do you, do you trade products linked to the VIX? Uh, do you put anything in place to protect the left tail, or or not at all?
3: Yeah, and I think that's a great question. I think you know that's something that um, also passive investors should be considering today. I mean, you buy insurance on your car, you buy insurance for your house, you buy life insurance. Um, you know, buying insurance against your investments, you know, just makes makes sense. And you, know, why wouldn't you do that if you insure everything else? And so there are simple tail hedging strategies. I don't I don't trade the VIX per se, I think, you know, in his book, um, Mark Spitznagel um, wrote a book, uh, and I'm blanking on the title right now. It's a terrific read. Um, uh, But in it, he outlined a very simple uh, tail hedging strategy, essentially, of buying um, out of the money put options and pretty far out of the money, I think, like 30% below the uh, the current, um, you know, uh, strike price, uh, you know, that are, you know, two months, uh, two months out. Um, And just rolling those over every month and you spend about a half a percent of your equity portfolio on those um, every month. And so if they expired worthless every single month, when you roll those things over, you'd lose 6% on your on your portfolio. Um, but the only way that would happen, of course, right, is if the market went straight up like 30%. And so if you made 25% and you're fully hedged, you'd still feel pretty darn good about yourself, I think. And, uh, you know, if the market did go down 20 30% or something... These put options would um, typically protect almost all your entire downside, and so to me, a strategy like that makes perfect sense for equity investors who don't want to get out of the market um, but do want to have some type of tail hedge insurance.
1: Absolutely. So, just for the benefit of the uh, of the listeners, Mark Spitznagel, his firm is called Universal Investments, I think, and they're specialized in uh, in offering. Um, tail protection strategies on all sorts of equities portfolios, be that you know, S&P-linked or Euro stocks or DAX-linked, all of that. And uh, I think they're in business for uh, about 15 or, or maybe even close to 20 years, something like that. Pretty good track record also.
3: Yeah, it seems Taleb, Taleb's partner um, you know, is his partner there. And the book is actually The Dow of Capital, um, Austrian Investing in a Distorted World. It's, it's a terrific read. Great. Cool. Jerry Niels?
2: Well, you know one of the things that frustrates us a little bit is the uh lack of love that we all feel from cta trend following and diversification and uh one of the things that we that's trend following can add uh tremendously is putting things in a portfolio like gold and silver and uncorrelated markets energy crude all the commodities even though um, most of the analysis done by traditional investors would be, how did it work as a buy and hold? How is gold as a buy and hold? Uh, and so if it did well, I suppose it can be in the portfolio, whereas if you wrap trend following around it, everything could be in the portfolio because it's uh, immune to um, how it worked as a buy and hold. And so is that, does that uh, pique your interest or is that something that um, you could see as a value uh, for your portfolios or for investors?
3: Absolutely. I mean I to me I've heard trend following discussed as an asset class unto itself. And to me, that makes perfect sense because it's, you know, when you when you look at the returns of trend following, it's you know uncorrelated to anything else. And so I think, you know, and I think this makes sense for, you know, especially a lot of the, the big endowments and big asset allocators and those types of things. If you're looking at putting money in things and your options are you know, little venture capital, a little private equity, a little, you know, public equity, um, some fixed income, uh, you know, maybe hedge funds and, you know, or, um, you know, commodities and all these things, the different asset classes. I think it makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of those guys are probably doing it where they say, hey, we, would, we want a significant exposure to trend following as an asset class because it's a, a, an additional diversification tool from these other strategies.
2: Yeah, I just uh, read an article this morning from uh let's give them a plug. Um <clears throat> think newfound um and uh the title of the article is Two Centuries of Momentum. And there is, you know, quite a bit of evidence and academic research on momentum. And uh it once again it's a little frustrating to read about evidence-based investing, which uh is a little uh, silly in the sense that, you know, who out there is not investing and touting their ideas that are, that it's not based on evidence. But it seems that the more traditional crowd is really interested in evidence that continues to prove that owning the S&P is the way to go and the other evidence, eh, not so much. Not so interested in uh, evidence that, uh, you know, trend following and CTAs can add value. But, uh, so that's a little... Not a question, but but i didn't know if you had any comment on that
3: no i I, I do think you know this whole idea of inv- evidence based investing i I really think it's it's probably not much more than a marketing ploy um, I think you know the the idea of what represents evidence based investing is very very fuzzy <laughs> like like you said it's hard to hard to wrap you know to, to pin it down um and you know to me honestly it, it just brings up this idea too i mean I think what a lot of the criticisms from those who are call themselves evidence-based investors, um, you know, they say, "Well, we are avoiding forecasting and these kinds of things." And, and I wrote a piece about this a few years ago. I believe, I personally believe, everything is a forecast. You cannot avoid forecasting. Um, we're all using different methodologies to try and forecast. But if you buy something, you're forecasting a higher price. If you don't buy it, you're forecasting a lower price. Simple as that. And so every decision that we make is a forecast. And so these people that are, you know, I think this idea of criticizing forecasting is really just, you know, trying to differentiate their version of forecasting from everybody else's and so that was that was kind of my point in, in the post that i wrote is is uh we're all forecasting so why don't you just tell me why you, you believe your your version of forecasting is better than anyone else's and, and really that's the discussion that needs to be had is is what is it ev- evidence-based investing and why is it better than trend following or this have you or what are the what are the pros and cons rather than just saying you know we don't forecast we're right <laughs> you forecast you're an idiot you know it's a, it's a, it's a marketing play.
2: yeah it's marketing and uh, they like their for their evidence i mean I, i'm in love with my evidence but other people's evidence not so much i went to a evidence based investing conference once and Meb faber was on this stage and he said basically um and he said it recently on on, on this podcast that uh it, my his analysis shows that uh, historically Uh, Investors should allocate 50% of their portfolio to CTAs. And, you know, as an evidence-based conference, if I had been running this conference, I would have had to stop right there and and say, wait a second, this is either the biggest outrage ever or we have new evidence. But, of course, it went on and uh, not a word was said after that. But, uh, yeah, it is a little frustrating to have to deal with, um, you know, Pretending that uh, everyone is open-minded to different uh, pieces of evidence that don't really fit with their business model.
3: Well, you know, but to me, that's one of the most difficult parts about uh, managing money. And it's why I really don't do it anymore, because I think it's so, so difficult to get people to do the right thing at the right time. Right. Be, everybody wants to be passive today. And it's probably the worst time, I think, to be a passive investor um, uh, that, you know, a, a passive buy and hold investor over the next 10 years might, you know, proved to be one of the worst strategies you could choose but that's just how investor you know psychology works they want to i mean think about how much money flowed into you know tail hedging and all those kinds of things and short only funds in 2009 10 when it was the absolute wrong time to be doing that those guys were trying to raise money in 2000 you know six seven when it would have been a wonderful time to allocate to long short short only um tail hedging and they couldn't raise money to save their lives and so you know it's 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 very very difficult to um, you know and you know for this reason I'm I'm very bullish on trend following for the for for one of the reasons that it's it's generally struggled in recent years I, and I do think it's because we're in these transition points in a lot of these markets we're we're in major long term trend shifts potentially from you know bond bull market to bond bear market um, and and uh, you know and I've been bullish on bonds short term but but I'm talking longer term and same thing in stocks you know if we're potentially going going into a more difficult, um, you know, phase, this, this makes it difficult to try and catch the trends because there really just aren't big trends right now, but we potentially could see some really strong trends over the next, you know, five, 10 years that trend following will be able to capture, um, you know, either side of that trend and passive will, will not. And so, um, you know, To me, that's just also just comes back to contrarian. Whatever's the most popular, uh, you know, strategy of the day is usually not going to be, uh, you know, do so well um, over a longer period of time.
2: Uh, And if I could just ask one more, uh, say one more thing. Uh, The, uh, I I love this idea about forecasting and everything is a forecast, Um, you know, and we sort of try to say that's not true about us. And so we're buying these breakouts, we're selling these breakouts and we're not doing anything. And so maybe... Since we do have a 40% win rate, maybe we could uh, compromise and say, okay, we'll go with you that uh, we we too are forecasting, but we're the worst people on the planet since we lose 60% of the time.
3: Well, I I do think trend following is a forecasting tool. I think it's probably one of the more successful ones. And this is why I teach some investing classes here in Bend, um, you know, through the community college. They're open to investors. And it's one of the the main things I teach people because it's really hard uh, for people to learn how to be a good value investor. It takes a ton of work. You have to do a ton of research into financial statements and, you know, the business model, listening to the conference calls. And most people don't have the time and energy to do that. And so I say, great, you know, trade individual stocks, but just make sure you pay attention to the trend, whether it's just the 200 day or the 50 and the 200, the cross this is why I really loved having you on, on my podcast, Jerry, because I think, you know, if it's good enough for you and it's good enough for Paul Tudor Jones and, you know, and all, then it's good enough for individual investors. And, um, you know, I do think, You know, compared to all the possible methodologies an individual investor might use to try and time an individual stock, trend following is by far (laughs) got to be, you know, the the best or you know uh, one of the top ones that an individual investor can 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 uh, utilize.
0: It's funny when I hear that conversation between uh, you and Jerry, uh, Jesse, because I I feel the same when when we come out and we say we're trend followers and and people say, oh, well, I don't believe in trend following and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But but you could argue that most investors really deep down are trend followers because they buy something because they expect it to move to a higher price or they sell something because they expect to, to move to a lower price, even though they won't confess to themselves or they don't think about themselves as being trend followers. But that's... In reality what most investors do
3: and they do it much more poorly than they otherwise would do if they were pure trend followers right. i mean yeah. right they, they typically buy you know when they wait until that it's it's late in the in the trend right so i would say they're more momentum right. um, based investors than, than trend but what they're what they're t- typically trying to do is, is catch the trend so why not use sure. a trend following approach
0: yeah absolutely now I promised also to uh, bring in some questions, some more questions from the listeners, and, and one of our favorite listeners, George, sent in a question. And I'm going to start by reading a quote that he, uh, I think, it comes from from you, Jesse, where he where he says, "I spend a good portion of every day reading through a wide variety of publications, blogs, research reports, and other sources in an attempt to understand uh, what the cons- consensus is towards any given asset class or security, and how it may." be evolving. To me, this is crucial in discovering those investment opportunities that everyone will inevitably agree with later. So, his question goes on to say, can you talk about why you feel knowing what is happening is better than just responding to price like trend followers?
3: Absolutely. I, I, I believe that what drives non-trend followers and non-trend followers dominate the market is narrative. What is the narrative in the market? And narratives go from, um, you know, a, a beginning state of, you know, disbelief. People, you know, ignore, you know, the news, they ignore the evidence in front of them to a state of acceptance, to a state of full embrace where you get the full euphoria towards, towards a trend. And so to me, when you can start, paying attention to, okay, where are we in that narrative cycle? Have people started embracing this? Or are they, or are they you know, have they completely embraced? And so, you know, passive investing might be a good example, right? So, you know, for a long time, passive, nobody wanted to own passive, they wanted to try and beat the markets by owning active. And then more and more people started realizing, okay, you know what, we're not doing so well with the active stuff, why don't we just go passive? And now I, I believe we're in the stage of a passive mania, where people literally can't even hear the criticisms against passive. Uh, you know, and, and to me, this idea that passive, you know, the popularity of passive has now undermined its most basic thesis right. is so plainly evident that it should be, you know, I guess, convince people that they, they shouldn't be doing, you know, uh, passive or they should be protecting themselves in some way against the, the risks that they're creating. Um, and so to me, paying attention to these narratives is very important. And obviously that that's a big macro narrative. Um, um, but I, but I want to look at them on on all types of scales and uh, in, in different asset classes, um, and and you know, and so this inflation idea is is one of those narratives that I'm paying attention to now. Which is, you see, the popularity of, mo- of modern monetary theory, something like that, right? And you could never have this idea of we can print and spend as much as we want without any consequences. You'd never have this idea unless you're at the very, very end of a disinflationary uh, framework that has gone so far that everybody is convinced inflation can never come back again. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it's very valuable to pay attention to those things because um, you just kind of take the temperature, uh, the market's temperature, in a a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different uh, areas. And and it's valuable in terms of understanding, understanding where we might be going. So it's more like a contrary indicator for you, uh,
0: in a sense, because the narrative will usually be way too late to really. I mean, before the whole world picks up on, well, maybe passive wasn't that a good idea. The markets are most likely always going, uh, already going to be down by by quite a bit, right?
3: Right. I, I, yeah, the market's and this is interesting to me too, that you know, a lot of the times people hear me talk about this stuff and they go, well, Jesse, these are such long-term dynamics, right? That's not gonna matter for years. And I say, well, <laughs> you know, the market is a discounting mechanism, and there's a reason why Stan Druckenmiller says, you know, if you invest in the present, you're gonna get run over. You have mm-hmm. to invest in what's the market gonna look like eighteen to twenty-four months from now. And so paying attention to these narratives is really what points you in that direction of what's the market gonna look like in eighteen to twenty-four months if you pay very close attention to um you know the you know these these trends the i mean and essentially these are uh, i'm also i'm trying to trend follow but i but in narrative terms not in price terms and so, um, so so how does that work in practice actually that's
0: interesting i mean how you know so so i understand about the 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 narrative i think that makes sense but then when it comes to the timing of it i mean how what tools do,
3: would you kind of use to to get the timing right so there, I guess probably, I'll, you know, I mentioned Bill Steeritz earlier on. I, I started mm-hmm. looking at Herbalife stock when Bill Steeritz got, uh, you know, bought $100 million or something of the stock. Okay. It wasn't involved with the company at all. This is when Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn were, were battling in the media. And um, Bill Ackman was coming on TV, he was on CNBC. This was late 14, early 15. And he was saying, this company's going to go out of business. It's a fraud. It's, you know, all of these things. And he's basically doing everything in his power to get the stock price down. And the sentiment towards the company, you look at how CNBC was reporting on, the sentiment was so incredibly negative uh, at the time that, that to me, the narrative um, that, that consensus had gone so far um, and the stock was so cheap that, um, you know, you couldn't lose by buying the stock. Right. And uh, this is another one I sold too soon. But I mean, the stock is, you know, up fourfold or something, you know, since then. Uh, And and so just paying attention to those narratives because I I was following that whole Carl Icahn, uh, Bill Ackman kind of battle. And when Bill Ackman first came out with his Herbalife thesis, people started really buying into that. And by the time the stock bottomed in early 15, everybody was on Bill Ackman's side. And it turned out, I believe, that Ackman was really just so worried that that Icon was on the other side of the trade and Bill Steritz and these guys, he needed to create as much fear in the market as he possibly could so he could buy in his short position. Um, And he did that. And so you saw the narrative that this like peak pessimism towards the company in that late 14, early 15 frame. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is kind of a contrarian, uh, you know, framework, but I think it works on macro and micro levels.
0: Sure, sure, sure. I mean, before uh, maybe Moritz, you want to uh, jump in, but before you do, um, I can't help thinking, um, th- saying all of those things, um, do you also have a view about Tesla, which seems to be the, 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 the other big story about, you know a big battle going on between the bulls and the bears?
3: Absolutely. I think it's terrific entertainment. I, I have no position in Tesla and I, I won't take one because uh, for me, you know, Howard Marks um, has has said, and I think this is one of the my favorite investment quotes, is to make money in the markets, you have to have a non-consensus view about value and you have to be right. Um, and so not only do you have to be contrarian, you have to be correct. And I think to me, there's so much um, negative pessimism already built into the Tesla stock price. There's so many very famous short sellers that are in it It seems to me like all the people I talk to the consensus is short. And so uh, the non consensus view might actually be long in Tesla. Um, I'm not going to buy the stock for that reason. um, Because I can't back up why it might be cheap. So um, I, I can't Take I don't think there is a, a a contrarian value stand to take in Tesla and, and you know the fact that it's so such a crowded short too um, you know is something that I I try and avoid.
2: Sure, one of our traders went on IB to see if they could if we could short Tesla for the heck of it. We're not going to short it, but uh, it was like almost impossible to to short. It's too many shorts compared to the float and the interest rate is sky high so
3: yeah and so to me i mean yeah why would why would you want to step in front of something like that that could potentially be squeezed you know so dramatically to me from a fundamental standpoint the company doesn't make money it probably never will it's you know it, it probably should go out of business um but then again you know crazy stuff happens in the markets and you know i mean a company like apple that has a quarter billion in cash could you know come in and buy just buy the company because iphone business is slowing or whatever that's not something that I'd I'd want to you know try and and mess with.
2: I have a Tesla and I was so negative on Tesla as a company and I thought and I didn't I couldn't warm up to Elon Musk and uh, then all of a sudden she buys me this car and and then the company starts you know having all this negativity but I actually love the car I think it's absolutely wonderful but I'm not sure about the company long term so mixed emotions.
3: Yeah no I think I think that's why people buy the stock is because they they do like the cars, and I think the short sellers don't understand too that that people do think uh, there are a lot of people that think Elon is you know a Steve Jobs type of person. Yeah, he might be a jerk, but you know maybe he's brilliant and you know he's built this this incredible product and you know that people have a uh, a lot of affinity for and and I mean it 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 could work out it could work out. I I so I to me it's you know I I I moved here to Bend um, for one one of the reasons I have. I have a crowd phobia physically. So <laughs> I have a crowd phobia in the markets, too. I don't want to get involved, you know, uh, with anything that's, that's crowded like that, except from maybe the other side of the trade. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, in this case, if the shorts are so crowded, you know, I can't make a, a justification for getting long, but I'd probably be looking at it from that standpoint just because of, um, you know, I like to go against the crowd.
0: Maybe the last comment on Tesla before, uh, Moritz, you jump in, and that is, uh, there is, a, a, as a little plug, I mean, there is a really, whether you are for and against, doesn't really matter, but there is a really good uh, documentary on Tesla, uh, on Real Vision, that just came out this week. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story, and I'm sure we uh, there'll be an interesting uh, continuation of that story. Moritz? Well, I can only say I'd love to speak about Tesla, but then we have to make it a different podcast
1: because we'll... We'll be on air for three hours with all our opinions <laughs> on that car and elon musk and the crowded short side of that thing but you know interesting observer standing on the sidelines and following the stock and all the news around it it's very entertaining um now speaking about the trading at jesse i mean i was just thinking how can we picture and, and how can the listeners picture a Jesse Felder day? Are you like eighty percent of the day trading in front of the screen and twenty percent writing a report, or is it the other way around? What's your kind of like normal day in the markets like?
3: Yeah, actually, I, I do very little um, trading. Uh, my time frame is probably you know it's it's multi years for for stocks that I'm going to own, and maybe I'll find um, you know one or two really good ideas a year. Uh, and so, ninety percent of my time is is reading. Um, so it's it's just you know reading a, a variety of different um, publications and and things and and books and and then uh, you know um, I do a fair amount of writing um, too. But it's I would say it's probably ninety percent reading. Um, and uh, you know I, I I do look at uh, you know charts in terms of trend and momentum and, and those kinds of things too. But um, I spend most of my time reading by far.
0: What are you reading at the moment, Jesse?
3: Uh, I'm reading um, uh, a couple of things. Um, I'm reading a book uh, called The Guns of August, which is about the, the, the lead up to World War I, um, which is a fascinating read. Uh, it's kind of the scrambling for alliances between um, you know, France kind of feeling out if England's going to have their back and, you know, hoping, to, hoping, <laughs> you know, hoping Russia's going to back him up and, you know, Germany feeling out Russia to see if they're really going to back up France after losing to, you know, essentially losing to Japan. And, uh, you know, where does Italy stand? And, and is Belgium going to be able to maintain its independence? And all of the kind of, um, you know, dialogue that was going on between those countries. To me, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm, in, I, I'm in a book club um, with a few other guys here in Bend that are, are all Really interesting um, thinkers and successful business people, and you know they proposed this because of some of the kind of dynamics they're seeing around the world. And and to me, it, it there is a parallel here between I think what's going on, uh, what was going on then, and now. This mm-hmm. kind of we're seeing this kind of scrambling for alliances with Huawei at at the center, um, and you know this this uh, today it's more of a cold war like the cold war right with the chinese you know uh hacking um, you know, government, military contractors and um, trying to steal corporate secrets and these types of things. And it's all kind of happening on a technological level. And, you know, it's interesting to me to see the U.S. reaching out and telling Germany and the U.K., if you guys install Huawei, you know, components, we are going to essentially disown you as a, an intelligence partner. We're not going to share intelligence with you anymore. And to me, this this type of, you know, posturing is actually reminiscent of the the lead up to World War One. It's It's an interesting time we live in. It certainly is.
0: Moritz, did you want to continue down your thought, or? Well, no, I think one of the the other things that came up, I mean, we're all about, you know, we
1: love the markets and trading and, and reading. I think that counts for all of us. Is there anything like, you know, another hobby, sports, you know, soccer, tennis, football, anything like that that you enjoy?
3: Yeah, I'm really not very good at all, but I play ice hockey. Um, oh, uh, we we uh, we have a we got a, we finally got ice here in Bend a few years ago, um, and I, I played roller hockey when I was in in college. We had kind of a club team. We'd go play. Um, we, I was in San Diego. We'd go play USC, UCLA, and and kind of uh, you know travel around the Sun in California. Um, when we moved here to Bend in 2000, they were supposed to build an ice rink and (laughs) that fell through until, you know, so 15 years I had no ice, but the last four or five we've, we've had, um, we've had ice and it's been, been a lot of fun to, to go do that. I also play a little golf and, and try and do a little fishing here and there, but, uh, um, yeah it's I mean I Bend is a, is a beautiful place. I hesitate to talk about it too much cuz the, the town's growing a little too fast for my liking, but we have golf and and the rivers are gorgeous here. Mount Bachelor is, is, you know, 20 minutes away for skiing and snowboarding, so um it's kind of a, an outdoor haven.
0: Sounds pretty nice. Sounds pretty nice. Um I mean you mentioned you read a lot. And I've heard you talk uh, also and and refer to in your writing, which I follow uh, with great joy, um, about Warren Buffett. And of course, you you quoted uh, Charlie Munger earlier on. Um, when you follow someone like a Munger and and Buffett, I mean, what are the what are the interesting things or the important takeaways that you've picked up, kind of recently, in terms of where what they're doing, and and are you seeing anything that kind of? Kind of uh, supports this theory about maybe a a, a a shift that is that might be coming down the line.
3: Um, yeah, you know, I think probably the most important shift uh, Buffett wrote about this twenty years ago. Um, the most important shift that investors are ignoring today is the fact that if most people rely on a price-to-earnings ratio to value a company. And that doesn't factor in the amount of debt the company has on the balance sheet, and corporations have taken on a ton of debt. So I prefer something like enterprise value. But when you use a simple uh, price-to-earnings ratio, um, you are making an assumption that today's profit margins will last indefinitely. Um, Because if profit margins go down, the P.E. is going to go up. And pr- profit margins today are at their highest levels in history, um, and you know whoever I, you, you want to take i mean jeremy Grantham what buffett they 've all said that you know competition is alive and, and well uh, in, in in the markets, and that that means profit margins are mean reverting they 'll go back to a historical level. Well, if profit margins mean reverted today and went back to a more normal historical level, it would put basically, a, a, instead of a 20 PE on the on the market, it would be closer to 40 today, which is higher than it was in the dot-com mania. Uh, and so Buffett wrote about this in 99 when profit margins first got pretty high and he said, To believe that they're going to remain this high, you kind of have to be crazy. And even if they did, it would result in these political problems that would um, resolve profit margins eventually. And so he was wrong in that profit margins have remained high since 2000, actually gone higher than they were back then. But what he was right about was that now we're starting to see these political problems that are directly targeting corporate profit margins. So you have, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, talking about let's regulate buybacks and tie them to employee compensation. In um, all sorts, of, I mean, a rethinking of the antitrust framework. So why have profit margins r- remained so high? Part of it is this labor supply dynamic. But part of it, too, is that we have our antitrust uh, changed about you know 25 years ago, where we we came up with this you know consumer harm standard. If companies aren't harming consumers, then they can do whatever they want. And I think we're seeing a huge shift now back towards uh, what does is anti-competitive behavior look like. And really, we should start prosecuting these companies for anti-competitive behavior. So if you're doing things to put your competitors, you know, to limit your competitors' ability to compete with you, um, you know, that would be the the new standard. And so, um, you know, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of these political problems. This rise of populism is directly tied to this fact that labor's share of corporate income has gone way down and corporate profit margins have remained way high. So investors today saying, well, stocks are not that expensive, are making that uh, embedded assumption that profit margins will remain high indefinitely, which I think is probably, um, you know, uh, heroically optimistic. Profit margins over the next 10 years are going to revert back to normal. And it's going to make stock prices today look extremely expensive, um, which they are on Those measures like the Buffett yardstick, which show, which take profit margins out of the equation that are more of kind of a price to sales measure. Um, And so that's kind of one of the things I've been focused on in terms of, you know, that Buffett, you know, learnings from from him over the past few years.
0: No, absolutely. Very interesting. The, another thing I just wanted to 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 ask and and pick up on, I, I heard you all earlier uh, mention uh, Paul Tudor Jones and, and how he, um, you know, from time to time, I'm not entirely sure how often he does it, but I, I've seen these charts where they do overlays of, uh, you know, the 1929 crash, and that was part of how he predicted the 1987 crash, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I do to some extent, believe that markets tend to repeat themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, do you also spend a lot of time trying to fit past patterns onto current uh, situations? And, and how do you know when not to rely on it and and when to rely on it?
3: Yeah, I, I do really think price analogs are very interesting form of analysis, something that I've used for the past, I don't know, several years I've been kind of studying. And, you know, obviously, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I have found that um, the ones that work best are the ones that have also a kind of narrative analog at the same time. So um, it was three, four years ago, Ray Dalio proposed this 1937 analog, which is one that I've paid close attention to because the narrative... Um, analog is very, very close to what we've seen today. You had the 1929 crash, you had the Fed come out and print a bunch of money, you have deleveraging uh, and a big boom in asset prices, and then you have a, a new Fed tightening cycle. And so when you actually look at that Fed tightening cycle back in 1937, it's very, very similar to the tightening cycle we've seen by the Fed today. Uh, in a post-financial crisis boom, um, and then the price analog is about in, on a one-year and three-year time frame has about a 98% correlation in terms of price, and so to me that's that's just very interesting that uh, you know the, the the underlying fundamental monetary you know dynamics um, are very similar, and so is the price is prices behaving very similar as well. Um, And so also, you know, I'll I'll use it in terms of, you know, like if I do think the market is in a topping process, let's see what did the early 2000, late 2000, early 2001 market look like? Um, And also, you know, what did the late 2007, 2000, early 2008 market look like? Um, And is this rally consistent with a bear market rally from those prior examples? Uh, and this rally, to be honest with you, has been stronger than than most bear market rallies early in a bear market. You have some bear market rallies later in a bear market where you know this is pretty typical. Um, right. But you know, so I, I do think price analogs shouldn't be used obviously in isolation, but they can help. Um, you know, in, in the context of an overall um, thesis. Yeah, Jerry Moritz,
0: what are your thoughts at this stage? I think I might be out of thoughts. <laughs> Oh wow!
3: I think I might be out of thoughts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before we uh, we we completely uh, wrap up, um, I would like just—I know uh, I uh, I asked you earlier about what you're reading right now, but just in general, I mean, to to our listeners coming from a, a very experienced investor like yourself, what what are some of the general things that you uh, would recommend? Maybe books, podcasts, or something where you say, "Yeah, that's." Those are good sources of, of uh, you know, common sense uh, information or, or or something like that.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of this new podcasting platform. I guess it's not so new, but but I think it's fantastic uh, in that it gives um, everybody a voice and and and. It gives me the chance to talk to guys you know like you who are experts in in trend following, which is something that's very interesting to me. It's why I started my podcast is so I could go interview people and learn from them and 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 it's also a format in which you know, we can have a a long discussion like this and not feel like you're going on TV and they're trying to just suck a couple of sound bites out of you. It's a, actually it's a worthwhile right. discussion, and so I, I I'm a huge fan of this podcasting platform. But but also, I mean, you know, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, one of my favorite books that I go back and read maybe once a year. Uh, I think Market Wizards, um, the Market Wizards series is terrific. My personal feeling about you know for individual investors and kind of what I what I tell people is the best thing you can do is go and learn about as many different disciplines as you possibly can from those people who are the experts in those disciplines and then try and adapt into your own personal framework those that you find valuable because you're going to find things that make sense to you and suit your your unique personality and values and you're going to find things that you know that just don't suit you and so trying to implement an investment framework that that doesn't suit your personality and values that's going to end in failure and so i think you know being able to, you know, just be curious about a lot of these things. And, and that's, I mean, that's who I am. I'm just endlessly curious about a lot of these different ways people, you know, use to make money in the markets. And, and how can I adapt those into my framework? I think, uh, you know, podcasting and some of these books are, are a great launching off point for for people to do that.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Jerry Moritz, while I just run through uh, the uh, where the CTA indices uh, finished uh, the month, so if you have any further thoughts, uh, let me know. But let me just say to to the listeners that, uh, of course, as I said, uh, end of the week, uh, but also end of the month uh, and end of the quarter. So uh, the B top fifty index, uh, although these numbers are of uh, as of Thursday, um, and so there might have been small changes on Friday, perhaps even to the positive, but B top fifty index up two point six seven percent. For the month of March, up 1.39 for the year now. Uh, SocGen CTA index up 3.12%, now also positive 1.6% for the year. The SocGen Trend Index, uh, uh, not surprising, a strong month up 5.22%. And up 2.65 for the year. Short-term traders index uh, did have a positive month, 1.09, but still down for the year, 1.66. And the bridge alternative index uh, also a strong month of 5.23%, up 0.68%. Jerry Morris, uh, last chance for uh, questions for for Jesse. Anything that you want to bring up before we wrap up?
1: No more questions for me, but I must say I really enjoyed that, uh, Jesse. Had a great time. Uh, great speaking with you. And uh, I think that's a, a great podcast. Thank you.
2: Yeah, same here. It was really fun. I'm, I'm really yeah. happy that you're encouraging us to keep with our trend following.
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, honestly, guys, I was really flattered to be invited. It's an honor to, to be able to do this with you guys. And I'm a huge fan of what you do. So thank you very much.
0: Jesse, thanks so much for spending your Saturday morning uh, with us. We really appreciate it as I'm sure all our listeners uh, do. We are back with our usual format next week so keep your questions coming by sending them to info at toptradersonplug.com or send us a tweet and of course make sure to subscribe to the Top Traders Unplug podcast to be sure to get all the new episodes directly when or where you listen to your podcast. Um, And of course make sure you subscribe to Jesse's newsletter called the Felder Report and his podcast called Super Investors. From Jerry Moritz and me, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next uh, episode of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week.